reminding those who are, who are watching or who will watch that uh, next week we have no stream because we have an event that's taking place. You see it on the screen there. And um, so if you are watching or you watch and you haven't been here yet, it's a great, great Sunday to come. And uh, the event is all on our Facebook page. So those of you online, you can check it out there. But I would uh, encourage you to come to it and be there early. Um, and also wanted to mention to you, as it is the, uh, the last, wow, the last Sunday of November. Good grief. Are you looking forward to Black Friday? How many of you actually shop Black Friday? You know what that is. Used to be just an American thing, but now it's coming into Canada. Black Friday, yes? Where are you today? I mean, you get your TV for like 100 bucks, you know, it's 100 inches and 8K or whatever. Yeah, Black Friday. So, so last Sunday of November, which means you, we were nearing the end of the year. And uh, I don't want to, to uh, you know, keep talking and talking and talking about it uh, during Christmas and even next week. Next week we will have an offering, by the way. It's Sunday morning, so we will. We won't expect our guests to give in it. But uh, it's a Sunday morning, so that's what we do. But I just want to remind you and thank you for your generosity in giving. This is our third year of existence as a church. And as I mentioned at our anniversary in September, it's kind of the year where we get out of diapers. And when you get out of diapers, you got new things to pay for, as we have had new things to pay for. I'm standing on one of them. And uh, so I just want to challenge you, you know, in the coming weeks before the end of the year, people say, oh, yeah, I've got to catch up in my giving or whatever. Yes, we do issue income tax receipts. We became a charity this year, so we're able to do it ourselves. And so I just want to remind you, okay, and those of you watching online, you can give. You don't even have to show up to give. You can give through our Facebook page, not Facebook, our, our website. Uh, click the Give button. And uh, you can support what we do as well. You know, a, a cool story um, without trying to embarrass anybody. But this little camera that I'm looking into now uh, costs a little over a thousand bucks with all the pieces and parts and everything. And when we first got the camera, we thought, ah, this, this, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe no one will come to church. And they'll just sit at home in their pajamas and watch the, watch the sermon and never come and never engage and never participate. Well, this week on Wednesday night, I met uh, a, an individual. He almost never comes uh, in person, but he is very much engaged in the life of our church and supports our church very, very generously. I had coffee with somebody else this week, and, and her first experience with our church was through this camera. And uh, so sometimes for people, they're, they're watching and they're exploring our church before they even step foot in our church. And that camera costs money, just like the seat that you're sitting in. We rent it. Um, and, you know, you may not like the heat or like the heat, but you know, we're paying for it. And that's all part of being faithful and being generous. So thank you in advance. And you can give right up to 11.59 and 59 seconds uh, in the year 2019 and get an income tax receipt, okay? Uh, now then, we're finishing up uh, this message series. Uh, this is part four of God and Culture. I think that this is a series that I've got the most feedback on, the most comments on, um, especially the messages on climate change and LGBTQ. Wow, a lot of feedback and a lot of comments. And uh, I would tell you who are, who are part of this, of this church or those of you brand new, um, it, we post those messages on our Facebook page for a reason. 
if you run into a message that you say, ah, that's really helpful, and I know people who would like to hear that, it would help them to understand some things, well, you press share, right, on your, on your little computer or your phone, and that's just a way of sharing the gospel message. You don't even have to talk when you do it. It's amazing these days. So, gotten a lot of feedback, and today we're going to deal with... Um, with uh, it's, it's a combination of many things, really, but this question, and I hear this so often in, uh, in 21st century culture, um, how can there be only one way? When I say that, I mean one way to God, because what you will hear in, in the culture, and probably some of you have thought of it, uh, I certainly have, as I've read through uh, the Bible and read through in particular some of the things that Jesus says, this question um, deals with the exclusive nature of the message that we find in the Bible. So uh, it, it, this is a question of exclusivity. Um, this is not just a theological question that people have. This is a cultural position that people have, and it happens whenever faith is intentionally shared. If you've ever uh, told somebody that you're a Christian and you've attempted to explain what you believe, no doubt someone has said to you, but how can there be only one way? How can you say your way is the only way? And they, they have many different ways of asking that question. Probably you have asked that question to yourself at the same time. So it's a very, very good question and a difficult question to answer, but it's not purely theological, it's also cultural especially in the Western world here, people are offended by this idea of exclusivity when it comes to religion. Uh, the best quote that I could find is from Oprah Winfrey. Okay, I don't know. Does she still have a show, the Oprah show? She still does. I don't, I, don't, I mean, I have tremendous respect for her, and, uh, but, but her religious views are, are, are interesting to say the least. Um, and this is what she says, and I think she, she, she makes a summary there of what, what is very common in 21st century Western culture. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. I have heard that many, many times from people, some of them who do watch Oprah and some of them who don't, okay? But I have heard that line, and I think she articulates it uh, very, very clearly, this position that we have in the Western mindset. So I want to try and deal with that and help you see things maybe a little bit differently than you have before. And maybe there's some, you know, skeptics in the room or skeptics listening or watching. Uh, so I want to deal with this question, how can there only be one way to God? And I've heard it kind of three different ways. There's three kind of cultural objections to this. It's not an idea that's supported except obviously by people who believe it. But more times than not, what you're going to hear to this is objection, objection, objection. So I want to go through each of these uh, one at a time uh, uh, with you today. So, so number one, and, and, it's, and it sounds kind of like this, exclusive truth does not exist in religion or spirituality. 
It does not exist. No one, as some people say it this way, no one can know that their religion is the true religion and therefore all others are false. So it's this idea that you cannot propose or assert to have exclusive truth when you talk about religion and spirituality impossible it's off the table nobody can know that nobody can say that their way is the true way no one can exclude everybody else you cannot do that that's the way that it is that it is phrased okay i want you to to slow the phrase down a little bit okay exclusive truth does not exist in religion i'll say it again slowly exclusive truth does not exist in religion. Do you know what you just did? You established an exclusive truth. <laughs> because what we're saying when we make a statement like that is we're, we're making a truth statement. We're saying that when it comes to matters of religion, when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to matters of spirituality, there cannot be exclusive truth. Ha ha. But in doing that, we have just contradicted ourselves. We've just tried to establish a truth. But how can we do that when we say that there can't be any truth in matters of religion? Okay, so it's a really sticky thing to say from a philosophical point of view because no matter how you say it, you're going to establish a truth claim whether you like it or not. So you can't really, you can't really say that from a philosophical standpoint. If you look at the world that we live in, my goodness, you have truth all over the place. I mean, you have things that are true, all right? I often use this example. It is true whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, that you are sitting in a chair or I'm standing on a stage and, and all of us in this room, no matter where we come from, no matter what our background is, no matter what we look like, no matter what our, our weight is, no matter what our gender is, no matter, matter what our religion is, all of us, without exception, and you can disagree all you want and you can be offended by it all you want, you are accelerating towards the mass of the earth at 9.8 meters per second per second. Too bad. You find it's exclusive, it is. It's true. Okay, so we have truth all the time in life. It's true that you, that, I mean, we, we, we bank on it, right? We know that given a set of circumstances, such and such will be the outcome. We see how life operates in, in all kinds of spheres in life. Why is it that when it comes to religion and when it comes to spirituality, we say, no way, it can't exist there impossible, it cannot, that's off the table. Why do we do that? Well, because we're a little bit disturbed by the possibility, right? We're disturbed and we're offended, at least in, in, in the Western world we are. In other places in the world, that concept is not offensive at all, the idea of exclusive religious truth. But here in the Western world, it's a little bit offensive. Let me give you another example. I don't want to embarrass her too much, but my daughter is in uh, driving school. And so they had one module where uh, they expected the accompanying driver, which in this case was her dad, to come in the, le in the lesson, in the class. 
So I said, all right, I get to sit in a classroom with all these teenage kids, you know, and hear this guy talk to me about driving and how to teach my kid how to drive, blah, blah, blah. So I go and sit down there, and he, he was really good, you know, he's really good presenter, and for once, I wasn't doing the presenting, you know, I'm sitting there and somebody else is presenting to me, so I'm sitting there kind of enjoying myself, and lo and behold, he came up with this illustration, amazing illustration. And he said, you know, you're, you're expected to, to accompany the, the, the person who is learning how to drive, and you're expected to do so X amount of hours per week and so on, because we follow up with you, and there's a little book that you have to check off, and we follow up with you, and we, 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 you have to do that. You can't neglect that. You, you, the person needs to learn with an accompanying driver. It's part of the whole process. And he said, you know, some students, they, they, they don't do that for whatever reason, and they come into the class with their, with their book, and they say, and the instructor says, well, did you, did you do your, your company driving this week? And the response, he says, from some students is, kind of. I kind of did. And so the teacher, he says, let me ask you a question. Are you ever kind of pregnant? <laughs> to which the whole class, of course, laughed just as you did. No, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. It's true or it's not true. It's not kind of. So you either got into your car with the accompanying driver or you did not. There is no kind of. So it's true. So we operate in truth all the time. Why is it that whenever anyone dares to say that there could be exclusive truth in matters of religion and spirituality, everybody throws up their arms and says, no, 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 you can't do that. Why? The rest of life seems to operate that way. When you, when you look at Jesus, for example, well, Jesus is very, very direct about this. And this is one of the passages of Scripture that we get this whole thing of exclusivity. He's having a conversation with his followers, a little, little band of men, if you will, before he gets, he knows that he's going to be executed. He knows that all of this is going to come to pass, and he's talking to them, kind of helping them prepare for this, even though they don't really know what's coming. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is in John 14. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's talking about the afterlife there. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there. So he apparently has the ability to go there. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way, it's a tip-off there that he's doing, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, who we sometimes call doubting Thomas, I think unfairly so, but Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And here's the statement. Jesus answered, listen to the, the, the exclusive nature of the statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. Whoa, you could, you could stop right there. I mean, that is an incredibly 
either you have a you have a very deranged deluded individual or you have someone who's claiming to be god or you have um an imposter, a devil, I don't know, but I, or you have a madman, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he goes further, and no one, note the exclusivity there, no one comes to the Father except through me. So when you talk about truth, if, if Jesus, you contrast Jesus with 20, 21st century Western culture, Wow, you've got, a, you've got a couple of opposites there. Because not only did Jesus think that there was a such thing as truth, he was bold enough to claim that he was it. And so this is, wow, this is exclusive. Absolutely, it's exclusive. But it is clearly what Jesus taught. And you see this throughout the entire New Testament. It's Jesus, 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 focused straight on him. He puts the attention on himself. The, the other writers of the New Testament, they put the attention on him. And the, the idea being, this is God in the flesh. Demonstrated, I'll have you know, just for skeptics listening, watching, demonstrated by one specific event, uh, his bodily resurrection from the dead. This is the authentication of his claims. If, his, if he was not raised from the dead, what I just read to you is a lie. It's not true. It's fiction. If he was raised from the dead, then we have very good reason to accept the things that he says as accurate. I never met anybody who was raised from the dead. I don't think you have either. So th this is the crux of the argument of the New Testament. But for sure, for sure, for sure, Jesus is stating there is truth. And by the way, I am the truth, exclusive all over the place. Um, number two objection that we hear, um, and maybe you've, maybe you've had it yourself, all religions are basically teaching the same thing. So sometimes it's phrased this way, there are many paths, kind of like Oprah's uh, uh, religious view, there are many paths, but they all lead to the same God, whatever you believe. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said it to yourself before. I, I certainly have at one point or another. Here's the problem with that, okay? When you, when you look at world religion, whatever you're looking at, philosophies, cults, religions, world, any, virtually any worldview that you can, you can pursue, um, they are not teaching the same thing at all. And by the way, many of them make exclusive truth claims also. I mean, even atheism is making an exclusive truth claim, right? There is no God is an exclusive truth claim. So religions do not teach all the same thing. In fact, religions often teach contradictory things. So they say things that are opposite to one another, and they're almost in a position of conflict with one another, okay? Uh, if you look at the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, just picking on those three. Those are the great, they say the great monotheistic religions. I'd say atheism is a religion as well, but I'll stick with Ju Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Judaism... Uh, if, you, if you look at the person of Jesus, for example, Judaism would say uh, this statement of Jesus that we just read is false. He is not the Son of God. He is not the Messiah. He is not God incarnate. 
At best, he is a great teacher. And that's all. If you look at what Islam has to say about Jesus, Islam will say God has no son. Jesus is not the son of God. There is no such thing as uh, God having a son, period. He did not die on the cross for the sins of humanity. That is not true. Somebody else may have died in his place, but it certainly was not Jesus. And they will not say that he is. Christianity will say that he is God, God in the flesh, the son of God, and various titles that, that the New Testament will give to Jesus. But you see the contradiction? You can't have all three right, right? One of them's right. One of them's wrong, two of them are wrong. I mean, but they can't all be right, or maybe they're all wrong, but they certainly cannot all be right because they're all teaching different things. And that's just monotheistic religions. You look at other kinds of religions, you have a polytheistic religion in Hinduism, for example, where you have all kinds of gods. You have Buddhism, which is a kind of a, re a revolt in some ways against Hinduism, and Buddhism is, is technically an atheistic religion. You have all kinds of different cults and philosophies that all teach different things. They teach different things about the afterlife. They teach different things about the nature of man. They teach different things about the nature of God. It, it's very naive for us to say they all teach the same thing and they all eventually lead to God. I mean, even the gods are different. Even some of the, the religious views, like, for example, Mormonism. Mormonism teaches polytheism. There's many gods. In fact, Mormonism says you can become a god. You can inherit uh, your own planet and so on. Either that's true or it's false, right? Either you're pregnant or you're not. But I mean, you can't just say, well, it's all, they're all going to the same place. How can they be going to the same place when the place is even different, right? So we can't, we can't conveniently put that up as an argument, as offensive as it may be to us in the Western world here, it, it, there is some logic to the concept that there could be exclusive truth in matters of religion. I mean, there is everywhere else. Why not? But again, it, it bothers us because we say, wow, you know, that means this could be an inaccurate worldview. Or we could go further and say, this could be a false worldview or a false religion. What does that imply? What does that mean for, for people who, are, who are live on another, uh, in another part of the world? What if, I mean, if you're claiming that Christianity is true and nobody ever had the chance to hear it, what are you implying when you're saying that? I don't know. All I'm saying to you is we have Jesus who makes this very, very exclusive claim. Notice he's not talking about a whole bunch of other religions, he's talking about who? Himself. He puts the attention straight on him. We have to wrestle with all of the implications of that, but we can't, we can't throw the idea out as offensive as it may be to us. And for that matter, again, there are many religions that teach an exclusivity in their whole setup, their whole system of salvation. Uh, Islam is one of them one of the fastest growing religions in the world, even here in the province of Quebec, they have a very exclusive view of salvation for them, very exclusive. And they would look at, at what I'm teaching this morning, they'd say, that's false. What you're teaching is in darkness, what you are teaching. Okay, so someone's right and someone's wrong or they're both wrong, but you can't say they're all teaching the same thing because clearly as diverse as we are on the globe, is as diverse as we can see 
uh, in terms of religious views. They are all over the place. You say, well, what are you, what are you saying? You have to study all these religions in order to try and figure out what the right one is? That's crazy. I'm leaving right now. I don't even have the time to, uh, to, to check my watch during the day. You're telling me I have to inspect religion and become an expert of religion? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we, we have a claim that is made here by Jesus, and it is incredibly exclusive. Is he right or is he wrong? What do we do with it? Um, another way of understanding this from the scripture, quite interesting, if you look at the people in the Bible who believe this sort of thing and who, um, who had this, this, um, this concept in their head that there was an exclusive truth and that was found in Jesus and Jesus alone, you watch the way that these people behave and it's quite it's quite interesting because in many ways it's different than what we see today, especially from 21st century Christians. Okay, so uh, I'm referring to um, Acts chapter 17. This is the apostle Paul, and uh, he's the guy who, who was the persecutor of Christians and the guy who was putting them in jail and the guy who was having them executed and so on. And he has this, this supposed radical conversion experience and people are skeptical of it at first and then they get to see that he's the real deal and he turns into this church planter, missionary, apostle, evangelist. He writes more than half of the New Testament that we have recorded for us here. And there's an experience that he has in the city of Athens, not too different in terms of worldview from the 21st century with all this smattering of stuff that was there. And in the city of Athens, um, you see an account of how he handled this and you watch him, how he seems to understand truth and exclusive truth. It's in Acts chapter 17, um, verses 16 to 23. While Paul was waiting for them, this is his, uh, his little team of, of men. You have to read the context to see them. While he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed because he saw that the city was filled with idols. Yes, actual idols, these little statues that people would use to represent their different religions and their different gods and so on. And so he's obviously bothered by this. Makes sense, given where he comes from. And so what does he do? He goes into the synagogues and he talks to the, the Jewish people, which is, again, his background, where he comes from. He goes into the marketplace and he talks to the, uh, the people who come from different religious views there. And he's talking day by day and he he tries to to explain things to them he tries to reason with them and so on and then you've got a group of philosophers you've got epicureans there you've got stoics there and you have to go back in time to see what these people believe but it wasn't too too different than some of the worldviews that we see today and they start asking him and they start disputing with him and they say what's this guy saying this guy is a babbler. What is he doing? He's talking about following other gods. Like, what, what is all this stuff that he's saying? And this is because he was intentionally sharing his faith about Jesus, we're told. He talked about Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. And they're saying, what are you talking about? This is a bunch of nonsense. You're babbling him. And so what do they do? They say, you know what? We're going we're gonna to put you in front of everybody in the Areopagus, which is like a little stadium. I think you can still see it there if you go to Athens, this actual one that he was in. And he, they, they say, we're going to hear you on this subject. We want to hear this new teaching that you have. You know, it's a bit like the talk show. We want to have this strange 
guy with a strange religious view, and you're bringing these strange new ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean, and we're told in the commentary there, all these people from Athens and all these, they, they spent their time doing nothing, talking about the latest ideas. Again, sounds suspiciously like a modern-day talk show, right, uh, without the technology. Anyway, so Paul gets his, his moment. He stands up in the meeting in the Areopagus, and this is what he does. All of you are going to hell. You're all going to burn. Look at all these idols. All your religions are false. Mine is the true religion. I'm right. Everybody's wrong, and you're all going to burn. Is that what he says? Not at all. He takes a completely different, refreshing approach. And this is what he says. He says, you know, I, I see that you guys here in Athens, you are a very, very religious bunch. That is very, very smart, what he just said there. I have actually tried that, and it works. So I, I work a couple of days a week in a food bank slash thrift store and a lot of non-Christian people and all that. And some of them, they, you know, Jesus is like their favorite cuss word, if you know what I'm saying. And so I've tried this. I've tried this in different marketplaces. It always works. And I just say to the person, I say, man, I'm a preacher and you say Jesus' name more than me <laughs> in a day. Like, I actually pray to Jesus, and you say his name more than I do. You're very religious. Whenever I say that, it doesn't matter what the person looks like, their face gets red, flush red. I mean, and they are like, whoa, where did that come from? So I've tried the exact same thing, and it works. It really gets their attention. I say, wow, you are a religious person. And he says, I see all your religion. Man, I'm looking around, and I see all these objects of your worship. You know, very impressive. But I found an altar amongst all of your stuff there, and it says this on it, to an unknown God. The God that may be there, that we don't know is there or not. But for the Athenians, they say, listen, we want to cover it all. We get everything, every possible religious view we want to cover it, even the one that we don't know, we'll, we'll give him credit or her credit or it credit somehow. It's a bit like a, I see some people walking around and they have, a, you know, they have necklaces of every possible religion around their neck. Have you ever seen a person like that? They get everything, you know, every religious view, they just want to cover it all just in case, just in case one of them may actually be right. They say, well, might as well pray to them all and put them all on my neck or do something because who knows? There may be an unknown God out there somewhere. And so Paul says, the God that you don't know, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. And he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples. They were surrounded by temples back then. He does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands and as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation 
um, uh, of men and the whole earth, and he determined the times and the places where they should live. In other words, he's teaching the sovereignty of God. God is somehow in control of everything, even though it doesn't seem that way. This is what he's teaching. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, for he is not far from each one of us. And then watch what he does. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting from some of the poetry of their day. Some of the Greco-Roman poets who weren't believers in Jesus at all. He's saying, you know, they're right. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his Offspring, And then he goes on and he talks clearly about Jesus. He brings the conversation directly to Jesus himself. And he says, you know, this idolatry and this stuff that you're doing, you, you have to understand that there is going to come a time where God's going to stop overlooking that. And he has appointed a time of global judgment on this world. Wow, that's a strong, strong message. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to all men by what? Raising him from the dead. There's the resurrection of Jesus again. So all these people, they hear Paul's little, little rant there in the Areopagus, and it says, when some of them heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, you know, and they mocked it, and they sneered, they said, this is nonsense. But others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. And so Paul, he leaves their, their presence, and we're told at the end of the chapter, there's a few people who came, became believers as a result of Paul and his preaching. What is, what is my point in all this? It's that here you have somebody addressing uh, pluralism. You've got a plurality of religious views. He's addressing agnosticism, right? I don't know if there's a God. It's to the unknown God, same thing. He's addressing that, and he's doing so in a non-condemnatory fashion. He, he, he's not espousing the idea that all religions teach the same thing at all, but the way that he does does it is quite refreshing. Why? Because objection number three is this. Christians are often thought to be arrogant judges and people who condemn folks who are of other religious views. And sometimes they're right. I just need to tell you, as a, I've been a Christian for about 30 years. I've been in full-time uh, ministry as a pastor for almost 19 years, very involved as a layperson before that in, in leadership in church circles and so on. Like, I, I've been in this game for a long time, as some of you have. Can I just tell you, I know you, you might be a little shocked, but I have met some arrogant Christians. It's very quiet. Have you? <laughs> Probably some of you, if you're honest, you might say, yep, I have. Because sometimes Christians even can be arrogant for that matter. Sometimes atheists can be arrogant. Sometimes people of whatever religious view or not can be arrogant. Okay, but where, where does that give us the right to say, throw the baby out with the bathwater? If the Christian is arrogant, does that mean that Christianity is false? 
Not necessarily. It means the person is arrogant is what it means. When you look into the pages of the Scripture and you look at how the early Christians went about proclaiming their faith, they did so in a completely non-arrogant fashion. I'll have you know. Uh, last example for today is Acts chapter 4. This is the beginning, very beginnings of the early church. And you see there is a, there is a wave there of persecution of this new religion, if you want to call it that. And what you have there is uh, uh, Peter and John, two of the apostles, two of the people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. These guys are out in the public square talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And it is not well uh, liked. They actually go into the public area there of the temple, and there is a man who is crippled there, and they uh, uh, encounter this man, speak to this man, and by the account that we read, they heal this man through the authority and the power of none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And it's done in front of everybody. Everyone sees it. The guy's like 40 years old. Nobody can deny it. The enemies are not denying it. The friends are not denying it. Everybody sees it. And they say, what are we going to do with this? Look at what these guys are teaching because this idea of a resurrection to one of the groups there, they're called the Sadducees. This was a very, very offensive religious view. They despised this view. And so what did they do? They're the guys with the power. Back then, there's no separation between church and state. Religion equals state back then. And so they arrested these guys, and they said, what are we going to do with them? They can't go out in the public square and talk about this Jesus and his resurrection. It's illegal, at least to us. And so they're thrown in prison and questioned and persecuted because of their beliefs because of what they said publicly. And this is their reply after they're interrogated. They say, listen, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, just tell me if you see any arrogance, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. They would have probably been offended by the whom you crucified, but if you go back into the context, it's clear that those are the people who did, in fact, want Jesus to be crucified. God raised him from the dead, and this man stands before you as evidence of that. He is, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has now become the capstone. And here's an exclusive statement. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by uh, two men by which we must be saved. Wow. Very, very exclusive. And when they were told, when they see the courage of Peter and John, they say these guys are not educated. They're ordinary people. They don't know what to do with it. The guy who's healed is standing there with them. They don't know what to, what to do. They just say, you're going to keep your mouth shut and you're going to stop talking about this Jesus because we don't want this propagated in our city. This is going to cause problems. We're in control here. We do not like this view. We do not like this religion and so on. 
And here's the response of Peter and John. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. So we're going to keep talking. You're not going to be able to stop us because we believe we're doing this because of God. You want to arrest us, arrest us. You want to persecute us, persecute us. But we can't help it because this is exclusive truth. At least to us it is. This is exclusive truth. You want to persecute us, persecute us. And what you read in the book of Acts and what you read in the New Testament is that the church explodes, but in a condition of fairly constant persecution. It was not a church where, you know, they're, they're carrying the power reins of society. Not at all. They were the undercurrent of society. They were the underdog. They were the ones who was like, what are you talking about here? And they start, there's, everything starts to change across the Roman Empire very, very quickly because of a persecuted movement. And that this is even before Emperor Nero and so on and all of the vicious things that he did to people who were part of this new sect, as it was called, of Christianity. Now times have changed, probably for the worst, and often Christians are thought of as power mongers and, you know, people look at the, especially the United States and they say, well, you know, is that Christianity? All of that kind of power and arrogance and egocentral, all this stuff, is that what Christianity is? And they look at it and say, yuck, I don't like Christianity. Be careful. You cannot look at people necessarily who try to represent Christ and do a poor job and therefore reject Christ as well. He is not calling you to follow his followers. He is calling you to follow him. The question is, what will you do with that? Will you say, eh, the way, the truth, and the life, I don't believe it. I don't believe he rose from the dead. Thank you very much. You're telling fairy tales. Okay. You want to do that? You can do that. I can tell you as a former and current skeptic, okay? I bill myself as a skeptic, all right? I don't believe in Jesus because somebody told me I come from a Jewish home. I believe in Jesus because some preacher told me I believe in Jesus because I did the work. And for me, I can find no other explanation of the empty tomb except a supernatural resurrection from the dead. And I would challenge you, skeptic who are here perhaps, or skeptic who are watching or listening, I would challenge you to do the same. You do the work and you see, is this Jesus actually saying the truth when he claims to be the truth? I think we owe it to ourselves to at least say, hey, maybe there's a possibility that truth could actually exist even in matters of religion. Am I open-minded enough to think that that's possible? Because it's, it's very close-minded to say that exclusive truth is close-minded. It's very close-minded. You're not open to the possibility that it could be. So you're close-minded. You say, you're closed-minded, pastor. You're not open to the possibility that all truths could lead to God. Oh, yes, I am. I've studied some of those truths, and they all lead to different places. 
Some of them lead to your stomach. Look at some of their religions. They're all over the place, right? So what I'm saying to you this Christmas season, I wonder if you would be open-minded enough to consider the baby Jesus, God in the flesh who has come to this world to save us from our sin. I wonder if you would be open-minded enough to consider him. 